Hello, and welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from those that are building them. And today I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Dominic Vidori Davis. Hey, Dom, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. What about you? I'm doing well. We're recording this on the Friday before Labor Day weekend, so I'm definitely looking forward to having three days off. I'm a little tired. I know. Oh, my goodness. The last of summer Fridays. Ugh, the worst day of the year. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) But we have a great show for you today, as I think we always do. But today we're talking to Bianca Cefalo from Space Dots, which is a space tech startup that makes testing materials in space cheaper and easier. If you're like, whoa, that's far out, man. Listen on to hear about just how they do that. Hey, Bianca, how's it going? Hi, Becca. It's really good. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you on, too. And today we're chatting about Bianca's company, Space Dots. So I think that might be the best place to get started. Bianca, why don't you tell us about Space Dots? Awesome. Yes. So Space Dots, which is the acronym for something very long that me and my founders came about, that is Dimensionally Optimized Technology Satellites. It's a mouthful, but basically what we're doing with Space Dots, we have miniaturized to the scale of a smartphone size testing labs that will be testing materials for space in space. And this is really the first testing lab, which is actively producing data about the properties of a material directly in the orbit where they will be used, whether it's an Earth orbit or a cislunar orbit or an interplanetary orbit. Our form factor is small enough and light enough to be flown pretty much everywhere. And this is to basically reduce time to market of advanced materials to be used for the next future space exploration missions. And that is pretty far out, pun kind of intended. (laughs) And so I'm definitely curious, kind of like, how did you get interested in this space to begin with? Like, take us back to the beginning. Like, have you always been super interested in, like, space and space exploration and such? Okay, so there is a fun story about me becoming an accidental rocket scientist. So as as I was a child, yeah, uh, I kind of fell into space somehow. Although I've always been curious as a child about the bigger questions of the universe and all of that. The reason is, so I'm the first gen graduate in my entire family. And my dad used to have a car demolition business. So I used to spend lots of my childhood times in the garage with him. And he was dismantling cars. So I'm Italian. So he was working with these big brands like Ferrari, Lamborghini, all of that. Now, everyone knows how beautiful these cars are from the outside. But I was looking at them from the inside, which was even more beautiful for me because you can actually see every tiny little pieces and how they join together and how they make this super high performance machine work. And I remember seeing my dad doing that job day in, day out, working his face off. And I'm like, this this man is happy. Is so happy about what he's doing. And I want to be as happy as him when I grow up and I, I do a job. So I kept having that kind of curiosity about how things work, how things are put together, how do you build whatever things. So I got very much interested in Formula One. So for us, Sunday lunch in Italy was Formula One, Ferrari, Schumacher at the time in the 90s, we are talking, it was the driver for Ferrari and he was always winning. So my idea was, oh my God, I want to become a racetrack engineer. 
This actually came from my dad. It was, again, coming from a family that has a very, very humble background, quite tough childhood, financially speaking, actually. And no one had an engineering degree. My dad was the first one saying, well, you love so much cars. Why don't you become an engineer? And I was, oh, that's that's great input, dad. So I literally went on Google and I checked. There was a specific part of Formula One, which I was extremely interested in. And this was where my mom's creativity came in. She was a makeup artist and uh, she's always been very creative, doing creative stuff for the house. And she would always choose paintings and, and just, just decorate the house in a beautiful way. And I remember she chose a Picasso painting for our bathroom. I couldn't grasp the idea of why that thing was there because I couldn't even understand what that was. And she made me realize was my dad made me understand how things work and are built together from a more, let's say, functional way. My mom made me understand how to understand different perspectives when actually looking at things that are different from us and from what we consider beautiful. I was, this is amazing. So I wanted to kind of join the beauty of the art with the engineering together. And aerodynamics and fluid dynamics was that for me, because you literally, when you are simulating airflow around a car, around a person, around a building or an aircraft, you are actually giving colors and mapping all these beautiful airflows that you don't see, but actually exist around us. If I were to make a simulation about now, I would see the airflow and different colors based on temperature and pressure, which is amazing. And so I Googled, how do I become an expert in aerodynamics? And that was, you need to study aerospace engineering. So I went back to my parents and I said, I'm going to become an aerospace engineer. And they looked at me and they were like, what? <laughs> well, if that makes you happy, you're going to become an aerospace engineer. And then the more I went into my studies in fluid dynamics, aerodynamics, thermodynamics, the more I understood when I moved into my master's degree, that there was hypersonic aerodynamics, there was fluid dynamics for interplanetary missions on Mars, on the moon, or any other place in the solar system. And I was hanging a minute, why do I want to stay on the ground when I can actually land on another planet? So I realized, okay, I think I'm going to take these one step further and I'm going to specialize in fluid dynamics and thermodynamics for, um, for space missions, which is basically what I've done. And it's basically this kind of specialization that led me my first ever project and job as a thermal fluid dynamic analyst for the JPL NASA InSight Mars mission. So it was a lander on the Martian planet. I was only 23. And after a couple of years, it landed on Mars in 2018. And this is how I actually fell into the far reaches of space science by wanting to become a racetrack engineer. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. And I feel like it's so fun to chat about this now because I feel like space manufacturing is now something... I don't know if it's big enough to say it's its whole market at this point, but I've definitely chatted with other companies in the space manufacturing space. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, once you sort of got deep entrenched into space science and you've gotten to this point in your career, 
how did you come up with the idea for Space Dots and sort of taking it more to that manufacturing side than what you had been doing already? Yeah, so how we came about with this idea came from a frustration that myself and my co-founder actually had during our time as product managers for Airbus Defense and Space. So going back a little bit, so I started my first project with a subcontractor for the NASA JPL, and I moved to Germany in Berlin. Then when that project was over, I moved to the thermal engineering department. During those five years in Berlin, I learned everything, all the ins and outs of being an R&D engineer. So what it takes to actually write a proposal to the European Space Agency for a specific payload and then to simulate it, test it in the, in, in the lab, qualification, assembly, integration, launch, downlink data, cross-correlation of the data, all of that. And I started realizing that, A, I didn't want to be an analyst for the rest of my life because I'm more of a people person. And two, that there were some shortcomings into the way that we are sending technologies or materials into space when simulating them on ground, but using inputs for our own simulators, which are not accurate. For instance, when I had to come about with the model for the atmosphere on Mars, it was just a lot of assumptions. I remember being on the phone with the guys of this software house that we were using and they had absolutely no idea how to do it. Just because we were missing very critical, important data that we just didn't have because not many missions were actually done on the Martian atmosphere to be able to cross-correlate those. And so you would send something into space, but you start to see that there is a high failure rate of CubeSats, for example, because not everything has been simulated or it's been cross-correlated in, in the right way. And so it was, okay, well, let's, let's move then a notch up into this, the chain of the R&D and let's see if there is the same problem. So I moved from Berlin to London and I became a product manager for Airbus Defense and Space here in the UK. And I was on charge of working for the thermal control solutions on the roadmap of the telecommunication spacecraft. And here again, on a larger scale, I realized that there was the same problem. So Basically, our job was mine on the thermal control solutions and for my co-founder on the structural solutions, we were hitting the same problem over and over again. We were asked to design structures that could be lighter, that could allocate more power loads on it, that could be obviously cheaper because the lighter it is, the cheaper it is to fly, and also easier to integrate, so easier to use automation. And to do all of these, most of the questions could be answered by using different materials, because as much as you want to change the structure of a, of a spacecraft, it's mainly a cube or it has like six faces and it can be as small as a loaf of bread. It can be as big as a, as a room, but pretty much the geometry is the same. So all you can do is just change the materials lighter, better, more apt for automation. So we were working, especially personally, I was working on nanomaterials, 2D materials like graphene and graphite, metamaterials, and my co-founder was working on 3D printed materials. And we realized that by different co-developments between Airbus, the European Space Agency, external agencies, other material suppliers, you get to a stage of the qualification on ground. So simulations, Simulation on, on, a, on a laptop, 
simulation in different chambers that are actually simulating the temperature and the environment that space will be. And then you reach to a stage where you want to fly these on your customer satellite. Then during this big board review, you are pitching to the customer, Airbus customer, we've got this amazing new technology and uh, we actually want to apply it on your next telecommunication spacecraft because we think it's going to have a massive knock-on effect in terms of benefits, financial and all of that. And then they will say, well, has it ever flown? Right. And it will be no. And so they will not use it. So basically, we realized that from the smaller companies to the agencies, to the bigger corporations, there is this paradox which has been around for decades, which is anything that needs to be used in space, whether it's a new technology or a new material, needs to be validated in space first. If even the big corporates, because then we started asking around the network, is it just our problem? No, it's not Airbus, it's just not Palestinian space, it's just not Northrop Grumman. All these primes in the industry had this problem as much as then it would go down the value chain to the suppliers of materials, to their customers. So we said there has to be a better way to do this. And I used to say, you wouldn't test the rain coats in the sun. So right. why would you test? stuff that needs to go into space on Earth, why don't you just test them in space? So during the pandemic, we had time to think about a solution, about the problem. So we thought, okay, so if we are to give a service for material suppliers for the space industry, and if we are to make a life of a product manager, thinking about ourselves as the end users of a big corporate, easier, what would we do? Obviously, the easier answer is you have to make something that is less complex and cheaper than what would be a, an actual solution. To do this from a hardware perspective, obviously, miniaturization comes into mind. So you have to make something that is high validity, that is small enough, that can fly pretty much everywhere. So high frequency flight access and it's not going to cost millions because that's the baseline that we have today. It's going to cost an order of magnitude less. So we came after multiple iterations and conversation with other CEO friends and, and even early investors and, and our peer group. We came about to the idea of space dots. So miniaturizing all the testing equipment that is currently used on ground into a kind of a smartphone size format. And this is really our IP. And so we started pitching the ideas to customers going back to our own colleagues. And then they said, yes, that's exactly the problem we've been having. And nobody has ever come to give us a solution. So this seems like a good idea. So we went on with it. And, and here we are today. I am like obsessed with everything. I have like so many <laughs> questions because like, I know nothing about space. And so I'm just like, oh, my gosh. So for materials, what are like the best and worst materials to test in space? And like what happens to some of the materials that you've seen in terms of um, testing? Like do they explode or like what happens? Okay, so it's hard to say what's the best or the worst because not many materials have been actually used in space. So if you think about uh, spacecraft nowadays, most of it, if not 90% of it, is made out of the same aluminum alloys that were used in the Apollo mission. 
And it's aluminium, it's mainly aluminium, titanium, some ceramics, some glass coatings and all of that. But there is nothing really sci-fi. And again, going back to the Formula One, Formula One is way more sci-fi in terms of materials than space. And this is because the entire process of actually marketing and commercializing a material for space is complicated. For instance, if you think about re-entry vehicles, especially if the, the capsules are obviously crude capsules, so as they contain humans, they have to have like an extreme scrutiny because when you're coming back through the Earth atmosphere, the capsule can go up to maybe tens of thousands of degrees Celsius. So you need to have an ablation uh, shield that is made of a material that actually is to protect thermally what's happening in there. So if you have the wrong material there, you're literally risking people's life. So that's really the difficulty of a material is this is what's been so far. But now going far ahead in the future and thinking that the entire space industry and let's say humanity as a whole is moving from the idea of living just on earth. I'm a firm believer, reason, motivation why the space thoughts is that there will be ecosystem in space where humans are going to thrive. There will be habitats on other planets. And this may happen in the next hundreds or thousands of years. But obviously, the one thing is to send up a satellite for imagery that it's okay if it's just made out of aluminium. We can use some nanocomposites, obviously, to make it lighter and make it all more accessible to different, let's say, different players in the world. But the whole different thing is to having humans actually living in space for a longer period of time than what an astronaut would leave on an international space station, for example. And to do that, you need to think about the human factor. Like on Earth, we have tables, we have, we have everything, we have clothes we can actually live in. This doesn't exist yet for space. And if we don't start to do this now, from high-tech fabrics to all sorts of composites and ceramics and biofilms and biomaterials for the space industry that are going to obviously go through the radiation and all the very harsh environments of space, then we are preaching, but we are not actually executing what we are preaching because I don't think humans want to live in a, in a team can. So the worst for, for materials is that they can actually just make humans' life at risk for not being tested and qualified for the radiation, for the extreme temperature difference that you have when you go through an orbit around the Earth. And you can go very quickly. If you think about a low-Earth orbit, one orbit around the Earth is one hour and a half. In one hour and a half, you can see plus 150 degrees, minus 150 degrees. How do you make sure that the human body is okay with that temperature if you don't have the, the right materials? This is really what's important. That's so fascinating. Wait, so I mean, I guess it's safe to say that it's not necessarily a good thing that we're still using materials from like the Apollo mission. If we truly want to make commercialization of space, I think, that again moves beyond spacecraft used for, you know, Earth observation or broadband or anything else, then obviously we need to look at other things. I'm just like curious, you're building this company at such an interesting time because I feel like even just from covering the startup space for five, six years now, I feel like the last two, three years in particular, Heather's seen this startup resurgence 
and focus on building for space, especially now that, you know, companies like SpaceX and stuff have been around long enough to have people, alumni, spinning out and trying to solve Mm -hmm. other problems they noticed. There's just seems like there's a lot more people working and focused on space now. And how do you think that plays into Space Us now and sort of how you guys will be able to grow over the next couple of years that there is this renewed attention? I mean, and positives. We just saw India had their mood landing and we've had a lot of really good things about space to celebrate recently too. And sort of how do you think that all plays into how the company will be able to kind of grow and get on people's radar? It's a great question. And I always say, I think the pandemic time, like any other dark time in the history of humanity, is the time where innovators come to life. And if you don't make it now, probably you are wasting a huge chance of making it in the future. Not that it's not going to happen, but this is really the time where innovation is booming, especially when it comes to space tech. Again, because Thanks to obviously SpaceX and multiple other commercial company, there is, let's say, what's called the new space now, the new space ecosystem, which is different from what's labeled as old space and whereby old space, we mean the agencies or the big corporates that came out of government or military or the World War II. So they were mainly serving military purposes, defense purposes. Now we are looking at companies that are approaching this from a purely commercial side and are looking at problems from a very different angle. So it's the best time for anyone. If you have had a problem and you want to solve it through space tech, whether that's a software, whether that's a supply chain issue, whether that's a new hardware or a new solar panel, whatever that is, it's the best time to do so because there is such an inflection point now in the space industry where it's going to be worth trillions in the next couple of decades. And everything that you can do for the space industry and any way in which you can influence where the market is going, like we were talking about space manufacturing, there is now a very interesting roadmap for in-space manufacturing from NASA, from the European Space Agency, from all the agencies in the world. That is the new seas lunar economy. We've seen it now, the moon landing, so the fourth country, India, going to the moon with a budget that was smaller than making like a Hollywood movie, for instance. So space tech is becoming way more accessible than what it was, thanks to the movement of the new space. And also this is helping the other players, like big corporates, to actually understand we don't have to do everything ourselves. We can take off the risk of doing this specific thing and we can subcontract and making strategic partnership with space dots, for example. This is what we're doing. This is what we're seeing with some big players in the industry who are starting partnership with us because they can offload something that is not the core of their business, but it's very specific and we can do that for them so it's the best time to start a space company if anyone out there wants to start one please do sustainability is obviously really big on earth right now but is there such a thing as sustainable materials in space or do we just not know yet what's good or bad for for mars i don't think we have quite that understanding in terms of sustainability. Like when we talk about sustainability on Earth, we think about recycling, we think about reusing. But this huge mission of having a sustainable 
circular economy in space is at the foundation of what we are doing because there is a huge talk, as we know, and we've all read about debris in space, so the junk that there is in space, which is also due to the fact of failure rates because you send up things that weren't properly qualified or weren't properly tested, or you're just using a big cube set for a techno demonstration when it could have been done in a more efficient way. So everything is now going around there. And there are a couple of companies, for instance, which are thinking about recycling these aluminium on these alloys from the junk from space and create 3D printed filaments out of those. So again, recycling in space. This is actually happening. These are talks where we are very much involved because it's an entire value chain. So we don't know per se in, on each of the different planets what's going to be sustainable there or not. But we know that we can start applying in space around the Earth what we've been doing on Earth as well. Okay, we've been using this material, we've been using this system, it's decommissioned now, and it's just there. It's just material that is floating around the Earth. Can we actually reuse it and build something else in space? So it's recreating the entire infrastructure from the manufacturing to the testing, which is where we are involved, to the, the assembling and integration in space. This is as far as I can talk about the sustainability. And then there is a whole conversation about planetary protection. And there are different divisions in every state about what could be done on a planet or not, how we make sure that we are not contaminating that planet with something which is coming from Earth. Reason why everything we integrate and send into space needs to be integrated in clean rooms and you don't have to have outgassing of a material. So again, to avoid contaminating an environment which is not ours with something coming out of Earth. And switching gears just a little bit, because all of this sounds very expensive. Um, how do you bootstrap a company like this? Right. So by having a bank account that is red, <laughs> literally, <laughs> this is so, so the way the way I bootstrapped until we actually close our pre-seed is literally everything. So I, I had a job. We incorporated space dots in 2021, although the first year was more of the ideation phase, getting our you know, stuff together. And then last year was the year where we actually went into head on. We knew what the product was. We knew what we wanted to do. We knew how much we needed to raise. So we got our ducks together. But during that time, I was having another job for another startup and my co-founder left his job at Airbus Defense and Space. So I couldn't leave that job and everything that all my savings went into space dots first. Then when we realized that my co-founder was leaving off like both of us, I was literally paying him through my salary. And the both of us were just living on the basics means until we got to the closure of a, of a pre-seed, then we can pay ourselves salary and I could actually leave the previous job. So this is what we've done. And we couldn't build the hardware with just by bootstrapping because for as much as my account was in red, I didn't have millions to put into the business. So we've done as much as we could to get our stuff together, let's say, to use a soft word. And then I was just working nonstop, which is something that became toxic to a point, but I knew it was temporary. 
And then when we actually closed our pre-seed round before that was announced this year in, in July, I left already my job back in April. So this is where we kind of started having more of a boost of things happening because I could focus 300% on the business. My backhand count is now on balance green again, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> and so this is what happened. But if you want to bootstrap, even a launch of your first hardware, unless you are a millionaire, it's quite tough. Obviously, you have to go and ask for money, whether it's non-equity money from public grants, whether it's early revenue, whether it's a customer already paying for your minimum viable product, whether it's PCs. So we bootstrapped as much as we could. And then we were like, now we have to make a choice now. And you touched on something a second ago regarding when you were working on Space Dots, but still working on your other job and working so much, it was almost toxic or probably was, but short mm-hmm. period of time. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough is the fact that the majority of people who start companies are working a full-time job at the same time while trying to get stuff off the ground. So I'm curious if you want to touch on that a little bit further and kind of talk about maybe what that process was like trying to juggle both when did you take the plunge and how did you know it was the right time to focus in on the business full time? Yeah, the process was, was tough. I didn't have any other words to say and it can't even be sugarcoated. It was really tough. And uh, the only way I knew to do everything was just working all the time. So again, the reason say I said it's toxic and the reason why it's not really talked enough is that there is a whole beautiful glorious thing about founders and wanting to build your business and so on. But then the reason why many people start with having a great idea, then it hardly goes into the market is because in between, there is nothing glorious about being a founder. Your relationship are going to be affected, your mental health and your physical health are going to be affected for some time and you have to take measures to avoid burnout on a monthly basis. I need to check in with myself now because I reached that stage too. And I need to check in with myself whether I'm kind of going very close to the burnout and I need to take a step back. So it was last year, it was November. It was probably one of our harshest times for personally, mentally, emotionally, for the business, because it was one of the months where we were waking up every day to a rejection from an investor, to a rejection from a public grant that we had applied, from another potential customer that doesn't answer, another thing that isn't working every single day. And I didn't have any more money to pour into the business, nor my my co-founder had And we had to, it was really a day where it was a Monday morning where we went through this call. We had our Monday morning meetings and we went through the call and I was just weeping my eyes out. I was just crying and I didn't know what to do anymore because I didn't even know why everything was just getting so difficult and if we should even go into these anymore. Then I took a step back and in between me questioning, what the hell am I doing with my life? And do I actually want to still pursue Space Dots because I believe it's a mission and a purpose that's bigger than myself? In between, I was thinking about multiple things. My co-founder was thinking, we don't give this up. I may just find another job. This may get delayed. I was thinking, what the hell do I do? I already have a job. I can't even get one because 
that's, that's just going to make everything more difficult. So I was approached by um, Headhunter about a chief commercial officer position for a big corporate in the aerospace. And for a moment, I said, mm -hmm, okay, let's discuss this. Why not? And I went into the, the chart, the first intro, and it was many, several hundreds of Ks a year. Great benefits, possibility to travel to Italy frequently because actually the position was interfacing the UK and the Italian market. So I was, oh, great, I can see my family more frequently. And then after that call, I kind of came back to my senses. And it's like when you're playing poker and you know that your hand is wild, but you were going to put all your chips onto that. And I was, okay, this is like a safe path. Lots of money, good benefits, easy life, great. And this is, I don't have any money at the moment. I don't even know if they're ever going to come. But this is literally what makes me happy, even when I'm crying, because I know that this is something that is just so much bigger than me. All my chips went into space dots. Like, we know, we know doubts whatsoever. And I called up my co-founder and I said, look, James, I checked this offer out. It was great. I'm not going to do it. We're just going to continue. So from that moment on, I went pitching everywhere. I went down like to three hours sleep a night. I was traveling everywhere. I was making sure that the pitch deck was in place. I didn't care about not having money. And a month later, we had our first investor, South a million. And a month later, we had another half a million. And then we closed our pre-seed. And I said, thank God I put all my chips in space dots. Are most of your investors in Europe? Uh, no, it's their balance. So the first investor is Boost BC from California. And then there are others that are based in the UK and Europe. How, how big is your team right now? We are six and we are hiring six people. That's so cool. Okay, so as a first-time founder, how would you describe your leadership style? I'm, tr I'm working on it because generally, although I've been leading teams in the corporates, it's very, very different from leading teams for your own company. And where I would describe my leadership style is I'm an empowerer. I love for the people around me to feel empowered to say and do what they think is right for what we are doing. So I fully trust the people that are around me because obviously they have to set the, the tone for the excellence that you want in your culture and your company. And I would say that probably the major trait of my leadership style is to have fun. For me, this is not temporary. This is space thoughts. Hopefully it's going to exist in the next 10 years and a couple of decades, or we're going to have an exit and all of that. So it's important that we are having fun and we are having open communication. I want to know when things are going wrong why they're going wrong. And there is absolutely no blame. We have no time to dwell on the negative things. We just go and run through the solution. So this is how I run my team. This is how I, I run myself. And I have to keep my ego in check all the time. Because sometimes, you know, when you're running a company and you have your own vision, and sometimes you can get extremely stubborn about your decisions or how things should be done. And I understand that the way I do things the way I'm so passionate and crazy and I execute very fast and I'm a workaholic, that's not the way everyone works. 
And I need to honor the way they work and I need to understand what's best for their peak performance. So if some guys in my team want to work at 2am because that's how they're going to get their brain creativity work, this is what they're going to do. I'm zero into micromanagement. I hate that. I don't want that for myself. I don't do that for them. As long as we are achieving what we need to achieve and we're very clear what's the main milestone next month, next year, the next 10 years, then everyone is free of being whoever they want and do the things in the way they want as long as we are achieving the results. Something I always love asking companies with multiple co-founders is, how did you decide who was going to be CEO and split responsibilities? Like, was there any drama or like, did you already know like you were going to be CEO? I already knew <laughs> because the idea came from me. And I've always wanted to start a business. I knew that. And I knew that I wanted to be the CEO. So let's say there wasn't much of a negotiation there. But also the, the great part is that when we started talking about the idea of space dots, there was a third person in the mix. And that was our, let's say, previous CTO. And he's the one that and we started talking because we were great friends. We used to work together a lot. And James was the third one that was in our product team at Airbus. And he was the CTO. And then I said to him, okay, you know, we've established that I'm the CEO. I'm the one that is putting more money in and all these efforts. So I'm also the majority owner. You are the CEO. This was, okay, great. But now what about James? Because I really wanted James in our team. I knew that it was going to be great. So he was meant to be the COO. Then this third person for his own personal choices, which obviously we've absolutely supported. He was going through a tough time. So he said, guys, I don't think I can actually build a company whilst I'm going through these tough things in my family. So he bowed out and we split his percentage between myself and James. But then we realized that James was actually a great CTO and most of the technical stuff and things were coming from him. So based on our personalities, James is great with technical people. It's great. It has amazing patience with talking to scientists and the end user because it's probably the most nerd about the two. And I'm great with the whole outward facing with investors, with the customers going around and all of that. So it kind of felt naturally, although I decided to be a CEO, still to this very day, we still talk about the division of the labor, let's say in terms of founders, and we couldn't have done a better choice for how we work and how we are personally. He has way more patience in certain things, but he doesn't have them in others, which I compensate and vice versa. So it was just perfect for us. Having known each other for such a long time also helped understanding what was the weakest or the strongest part. And I'm curious with this, being in the field that it is and being such a hard, complex problem. I know you mentioned that you guys are a small team, but hiring, what do you guys look for? How do you think about hiring for this type of a company when it is tackling such a hard problem that a lot of us just like don't have backgrounds that lend easily to that kind of problem? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's great to answer to this question as we are actually going through this and it's been tough. And I have to say, when you're a startup doing deep tech, especially hardware, it's tough to hire if you value the culture of your company and how do you want to set the tone of the collaborations from now on. 
it's tougher to hire because they may be amazing CVs, PhDs, and all of that. But that doesn't mean anything if you are not flexible, if you don't have the curiosity to learn, if you don't have the enthusiasm. Because again, let's face it, the early stages of a startup, even the first five years of a startup, until you actually have regular revenue and you've built a a whole huge customer base and all of that, are going to be tough. And for a new hire, it's never going to be like the founders. For us, we've chosen a lifestyle where, you know, it's like having a baby. You don't have a job. You have a baby and the baby needs nurturing on a daily and night basis. But for the new hires, they have to be so enthusiastic and they have to, they have to embrace the vision and the mission that you are on before their technical skills comes in. Because you may have maybe a lesser CV, you may be not a PhD, you may only have a bachelor's degree, you may be a self-taught engineer, but you are curious and you want to learn and you are actually humble to know what you don't know and ask for help. I prefer those people who want to grow rather than those ones that think, oh, I've got it all figured out because I'm a PhD. I know everything. That doesn't go very far. And being in a period of hiring is so exciting. Thinking about where you guys are now, the rest of the year, heading into the future, where are you guys headed? Obviously to the moon, but like, where are you guys going? <laughs> and what's the future for Space Dots? Uh, thinking about, you know, that the far reaches of the future, again, that the best thing that can happen to a startup in general, and I will talk about Space Dots, is to be able to have helped customers who had an actual need. And the best things that's happening nowadays, it's again, having another person who is enthusiastic about working with you, having another customer who's reaching out saying, we want to partner up with you because we have this problem. So the vision is actually to be able to start with the first product, which is again, testing materials in space, but being playing a pivotal role in what it is the in-space economy of the future. And again, being able to be part of the value chain or the infrastructure that is then going to enable humanity to live and thrive in space. This is what motivates me every day. If I've just contributed with space thoughts 1% to the chances of humanity to live off Earth and thrive and be better and be happier, just again, giving the 1% humanity a chance to live longer, I've done what I was meant to do with Space Thoughts and with my life here. And this is the vision that we all want to embrace. And that's what really motivates me every day. Besides, obviously, you know, we can talk revenue, we can talk exit, but that's where I want to be. If I've helped humanity to live longer, whether that's on Earth or in space, with what we're doing, that's the mission. Before we wrap, I have one last question. In the beginning, you said that that dots stood for something really long. Yes. And so I'm just really curious as to what does the what does the dots stand for? <laughs> it's dimensionally optimized technology satellites. And basically, we want to say, we wanted to use space dots because it's very easy. People remember that it's a bit like SpaceX very easy to remember. And then we wanted to include that something that will resemble what we are doing. And basically, our tech is a square, which looks like a dot. 
and is dimensionally optimized because it's miniaturized and it's a satellite because it goes into space, although technically it's a payload. So all of these technicalities to just say space dots, they look like a square dot and they're easy to remember. <laughs> you know, we get a lot of startups with names that don't make sense. So even though it's a little complicated, it is always nice to hear a startup name that actually explains the product. <laughs> but now we are officially at time. But this has been such a pleasure. Bianca, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, ladies. It's been awesome speaking with you today. And that was our conversation with Bianca. Dom, what did you think? I feel like I'm literally obsessed with this company. Oh my God, I know. We talked about this a little bit, but there's been so much momentum to build in space over the last few years. And it has never occurred to me that it's like, they don't even know if what they're setting up material-wise will even work. I like, know. Like, that just hasn't crossed my mind. I didn't even think about it, but then it, it all started to kind of make sense. I guess because, like, you know, all these billionaires are now going to space as if it's, like, a train ride to, like, anywhere else. And so it's become so accessible. And, yeah, like, now when I think about it, like, what are you sending up there? And how do you know it's going to work? How do you know it's not just going to, like, blow up as soon as it— you know, because like I'm assuming these all these new people who are creating space stuff, they're not like NASA. So it's like, how do you know that this material, I don't know where you got it from. How do you know it's not going to just flop? Right. So it, it, it totally makes a lot of sense. And I also thought it was really interesting how sustainability is a conversation right now, even though it's still really early for the company and also the industry, because there's so much junk in space. No, and there's so much junk in space because I feel like... Like you were saying, people just sent stuff up there and sometimes it just didn't work. And it's like if it blows up or doesn't work, like they can't really bring it back down. So it's like it is interesting taking that kind of approach with this to be like, okay, well, let's figure out if things are actually going to work up there before you send it up there, which means less junk comes out of that, which is great because I know I don't even want to think about the fact that there's all this like trash floating around the planet in space. I've always said like the space is none of my business, but that is crazy. It's probably so ugly to look at. The aliens are probably like looking at our planet's outer sphere and saying like that is a disaster, like ill. That's why they haven't come down here. It's like we can just already tell this is not a place we want to I know. They already can tell. And it's also like I also thought of a new startup idea, which is like space retrieval, if that already hasn't been done, of like just getting mm -hmm. all the junk out of the atmosphere so that we, we, we need to like restart and redo all of this. Like we should have been doing this day one, testing the stuff that we send up there. And especially too with what she mentioned, if people do end up wanting to sort of like build these colonies on other planets or like really take like a new idea of like a space economy, then it's like even more things you're going to have to go up there. What can you wear if you live on Mars? What can you do this if you do? It just seems like there's so much use cases now and the use cases will honestly probably keep growing. So very good position to be in to get in early. I know. This is a really excellent time for a company like this. I'm also just like really interested to see them keep testing and trying materials because like I was really serious. Like I want to know what does and does not work in a different planet. Like what if you drop like salt on Mars and the whole planet combusts? Like I need to know like what's, I need to know. I don't know. No, they're definitely... I have a lot of questions of like what would work. I feel like I would want to do like the stupidest stuff though. I'd be like, bring up this t-shirt, see what happens. I I'm know. curious. I'm bring some mustard up there and just like <laughs> spray it. Like, I don't, I don't know. Once again, I guess we are those neighbors. <laughs> the aliens are going to be like, ew, go back. I know. And that's why it's good that she is running this company and not us. 
<laughs> I know. Her fundraising experience was also really interesting. I mean, this stuff is so expensive. So how do you run a space company when you're not a billionaire? It's so true. And I think her talking about like working another job while she was trying to get things off the ground and even considering just abandoning the startup altogether to take a job that actually paid well and had stability. It's just, it's so interesting. And I feel like it's one of those other things we've talked about on the show before where I just feel like this is probably a more universal experience than founders are like willing to talk about. Oh yeah, totally. Like this is, this is probably what usually happens when people go off and start companies, especially a company like this, where it seems like such a massive risk. I don't even know how to to say how high the stakes seem to be. Definitely. And it's, just a hard space to build in. Because like you said, it's just so expensive to do literally anything, even though like they've made setting up satellites cheaper and like there's definitely been movement over the last 10 years to make things quote unquote less expensive, but like less expensive in the space industry is like so expensive in like the SaaS industry, like comparatively of like getting stuff off the ground. So it's just so much money to begin with. So it was interesting to hear that they were even able to bootstrap at all because I I know like deep tech is always one of those areas where I'm just like, well, you just need so much money for so long to produce anything, really. I know. You need, like, just money. <laughs> you need so much of it. But I was also happy to hear about her leadership style. And I liked that she was really, how she spoke about how she was, like, really accommodating to the needs of her workers. No, it's interesting because it's like, I've always thought this or chatting with friends and, you know, people getting new jobs, people talking about their own workplace cultures where they work. It's always like my friend and I have this joke where we're like, wow, that's crazy. They respect your time and your work and you do better work because of it. That's so crazy. Weird how that works. So it's, it is nice to actually, because startup culture can be such like a pedal to the metal grind. It is nice for her to be like, okay, yeah, I am like that. But I definitely don't expect or want anyone else to do that. Like they just work here. I'm the founder, like, you know, which I think is refreshing because you do hear about those kind of workplaces where it's like, oh, no, we all have to have this mentality. We all have to be like striving like we all have our money in this directly. And it's just like that just doesn't always work. No, no, everyone is different. And, you know, even she even spoke about, you know, not micromanaging people. I mean, every employee is different. I think good leaders recognize that you you come to, you know, your workers as they are. And you kind of work with their needs and wants. And that's how you get the best performance. Especially with a job like this. I mean, anyone who's even going to be qualified for the job is just going to be so smart to begin with. Like, this is such a complicated and technical problem that it's like, I don't know, you're not hiring some like 20-year-old intern who's like never done anything that would like need the handholding to like go like these are all very very smart people and I like how she talked about too it's like oh we're not going to hire you just because you have the PhD we're going to hire you because you legitimately want to learn about the space and like have that curiosity that's going to sort of drive and motivate them on their own which I think is I mean important for solving hard problems because sometimes you don't see progress for literally years I know yeah she's definitely not babysitting her workers like people are coming with it they're coming to space like, mm-hmm. and you know what? I'm, I'm so excited. I I just, I had so many questions, but not even from like, as like, like just kid curiosity. I have so many questions for her and this company because space, like what is space? Like, I don't even, what is out there? Like, I don't know. There's, I'm so excited to see where this company goes and what happens next. And I want like updates on every single thing that they test and try out. And I hope that they raise like a bazillion dollars. And something I found 
I don't want to say effect that I like about the space tech industry in general, but a lot of companies are like built to work with the legacy players, like all of them, which I think is like you don't always get that in so other industries that they're just like, yeah, we're building this product and like we can work with NASA. We can also work with a private company. We can also work with like the Italian space agency. Like it's like you can just like bounce around in a way that I think is just a much better potential business model than you see elsewhere. Having all of these multiple avenues for partnership is like, essential. And I also think that not I'm not pro or or against, you know, settling in Mars, but it seems like this is a realistic step toward that because we have to see if like our housing materials can last up there. We have to test so many things if, you know, this reality of shipping people out there is going to work. So this would be the logical next step is a company like this. No, definitely like a very key stepping stone on that journey that I feel like otherwise probably would have just been people just throwing stuff up there and trying it out. Otherwise, (laughs) Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Majori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.